Welcome to episode 135. Family life can be so much easier. Improving parent-child interactions using psychosynthesis. Featuring Dr. Eileen Vallesson, licensed marriage and family therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth E. Riaz, and today I am happy to be joined by Dr. Eileen Vallesson. Dr. Vallesson is an expert in the area of parental support and, and basically how do we support parents in being as effective as they can be uh, in their role within the family. Um, Dr. Vallesson, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, I would love to hear more about your background. I know you've been working in this line of work for quite a bit. You've written books on the topic. You're also a trainer and teacher about it. So please tell our listeners a little bit more about you and how you came to have this specialization and passion for supporting parents. Well, it all happened when I became pregnant and I felt life in my womb and I promised my son I'd be the best parent that I could be. And that commitment was deep and strong. And when he became, you know, two years old and had a voice of his own, it wasn't as easy to keep my cool all the time. So at times I would yell and feel just absolutely awful. And I promised myself I wouldn't do it, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And at the time I read Tom Gordon's book, Parent Effectiveness Training. So I could not admit that I needed help, but I was an educator and I thought to myself, oh, the family could enjoy some more income, so I'll take a training. And I became a parent effectiveness training instructor. Then at a certain point, I decided that I wanted to become a marriage family therapist. And I became introduced to psychosynthesis. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. A lot of people are not. But psychosynthesis is a transpersonal approach to psychology and education. Psychosynthesis introduced me to the idea that there were three levels of self, the lower self that reacts in a knee-jerk reaction, the centered self that is a part of us that can observe our behavior, can make choices and make changes if we think they're necessary, and the higher self, which demonstrates transpersonal qualities where we show compassion, we show wisdom, love. I decided that I wanted to write a program myself to help parents focus on what are the attitudes that really work and how can we help parents make that internal shift so when they're under stress, they'll be able to move from the lower self to the centered self. Got it. Thank you. Parenting has never been the easiest of undertakings, rewarding and joyful and all these other things. But it has been particularly hard for many parents in this last year and a half with the stress of the pandemic. And what I've heard continually, um, not just from uh, parents clinically, but also personally is just, a, you know, it's, it's descended into chaos when people are trying to work from home and do all of these things. And there's this looming threat of the pandemic and potential losses. And it's just, the stress. Uh, so I think this is really well-timed to have this conversation of how we kind of bring it back. Um, Dr. Vallesson, can you talk more about 
the theory of psychosynthesis. And you, you mentioned the lower self, the centered self, the higher self. Can you talk about kind of how we transition in between these selves and how you see this as applicable to parents, like what the triggers are that cause us to jump from one level to the next? Okay, thank you. We can start with the lower self. Basically, we slip to the lower self when we face stress. And whatever our definition of stress is, we're not able to, we react with a knee-jerk reaction. Somehow or other, our buttons are pushed and we don't have access to, you know, keep it calm, keep it cool. And I love this theory because when I would lose it, I would view myself and really be ashamed of my behavior. Yeah. Through the lens of psychosynthesis, this is something that's universal and that there's always the legitimate need. And that I have tears in my eyes now talking because the idea that I wasn't a bad guy as much as there was a legitimate need that I had that I wasn't able to meet constructively was very, very helpful. And so what we do is we help parents intentionally teach themselves how to calm themselves, which is, you you know, that's just very common nowadays. But when I learned about this material in 1975, that it wasn't so common. And a lot of what I enjoy is that when parents or anyone is taught how to calm themselves, there's an exercise that's called a relaxation exercise. So it works with the breathing and it works with visualization. So those are two very powerful, simple tools to allow us to make a transition. So in the relaxation exercise, we imagine that there's tension in the lower self, in the like the, um, the um, solar plexus center. We imagine that there's a elevator that parallels our spinal cord. So we take the tension in the solar plexus and we raise it through our breath into the heart where we transmute that energy to love. It continues up the elevator and goes into the brain and that becomes wisdom. So we transform the energy from the tension in the, in the solar plexus and change it to loving energy and learn to breathe it out. And we do that several times. And it's a very simple exercise, but actually the, the power of it is really transformational. So I was actually taking my oral exam for my MFT and I was really nervous. And I went into a dark room and I did this exercise literally for three or four minutes. And I felt like I became superwoman from a crazy, loony, nervous person after doing the relaxation exercise, some calm came over me and allowed me to, you know, do my best during the oral exam. And parents say that all the time. So for you, this going from that tension into the heart, up into the brain, this elevator exercise is really a mindful tool for parents to use when they are activated or a sense that they're starting to get activated so that they're better able to transition out of the lower self. Is that right? Yes, it is right. And what's even better is to do it every day in the morning so that you sort of set your thermostat at a cooler temperature 
because sometimes, I mean, I used to say I have to go to the bathroom when I didn't have to go to the bathroom, and then I do the exercise. But if an exercise is done, like meditation, like, you know, mindfulness, if you do it every day, you build a certain quality of um, ease within your own body so that you can access it. And sometimes it can last throughout the whole day. And if you need a tweak, then you can, you know, go somewhere and do it. So I like to remind people to prepare before they're having an anxious moment. But if, if we are, we can always disappear and collect ourselves again. So when in the lower self, and I think anybody who's listening to this, it's a parent <laughs> or can picture the parents that they've worked with, like we all know that moment where you're just activated and you're frustrated and your tone of voice changes and your body language changes. When we as parents are up in that stage and we attempt to do this exercise, how long do you see this happening? What's been your experience working with parents to do this really brief kind of self-guided meditative process to bring ourselves up to a different stage of um, psychosynthesis? That exercise can take three minutes, can even take less. I mean, if you're used to doing it, it can take less. So I think I once timed it, it was 1.5 minutes, but you know, you can do it more slowly. That's why I like it so much because other things generally take more time and parents like something that's, that's powerful, effective, yeah. and simple. So let's set the stage okay. <laughs> with a situation with a teenager that is not doing what they've been asked to do and the parent is starting to become irritated. If we are integrating just this first concept about the lower self and reconnecting kind of with ourselves and with our uh, calmness, if you will, when, once a parent starts to feel that they're getting physiologically activated, you know, that they're making a fist and their jaws clenched and they're getting hot and all that, you know, that feeling we all know so well. Um, how do you recommend they handle that? Is it, I'm going to give myself a timeout? Like, wh how do you see that happening when we're already in the process, even if we have done a meditation in the morning? <laughs> well, I love your question because there's lots of ways to do it. One is you can simply say, I see myself. I'm activated. I'm not in the best place to have a conversation with you. So what I would prefer to do is just take a break and give myself some time and I'll come back. For me, it's great modeling. One is I'm not perfect. I lose it. Teenagers lose it. Everybody loses it. So I'm saying I'm not in a, the best position to have a good conversation with you. And I don't want to watch myself get angry. I'd like to have a respectful conversation. So in a sense, you're laying the groundwork. Mm -hmm. There's a difficult discussion and I want to respect myself and I want to respect you. And I'm not quite ready to do that. So I'll take some time out. With really little kids, if we're talking newly verbal or pre-verbal, how would you do it? Okay. So, I mean, a lot of times if... If you're familiar with it, you can watch yourself. So very often parents will draw a picture of their subpersonality. The definition of subpersonality is their you their unique version of the lower self. So I drew a picture of Frenzy Franny. 
and I have kind of straight hair, but in the picture, her hair was like all coiled up because the electricity was going through her body. And then I answered the questions, how does she look? How does she act? How does she feel? How does she think? And basically, I was getting an intimate understanding of who this part of me was. So my hands, you talked about clenched hands. I always Mm -hmm. had clenched. And when I saw that, I could often just step back and say, okay, Frenzy Franny's around. She's really not very helpful in this situation. And in the moment, just remind myself. The other thing that that's really important is, as I mentioned to you earlier, attitudes are more important than anything else from my point of view in a relationship. So the most important attitude in the program I developed and in the book is really the attitude that I call quality parenting principles. And the first principle says, children have an innate drive to express their best selves, to develop their highest potentials. And the second principle is children depend on us to help them. So when I see my child acting out and I hold this principle in my mind, I'm seeing that my child really wants to do his or her best and they're going to depend on me to help them. And if that clicks in, I calm down and say, okay, what can I do to help you? And that whole attitude shift changes. For our listeners, can you restate those two elements again, just to kind of solidify it in our minds? Sure. Principle one is children have an innate drive to express their best selves, to develop their highest potential. And principle number two says children depend on us to help them. So if we look at an acorn, it's designed to become a magnificent oak tree, but it's not going to happen unless it has water, sunshine, and fertilizer. So our children aren't going to be all they can be unless they can count on us to help them. And with that internal knowing, parents calm down and see their job very differently. We don't have kids who are brats, kids who are trying to cause havoc in our lives. We have kids who have a legitimate need and they don't know an effective way to meet it. And our job is to help and support them. I appreciate the simplicity of that and both clinically, but also as a parent, I've had the experience, you know, I having had young children when a baby or a toddler is sick and they have a cold, they don't have the words to tell you. And so then they wake up all hours of the night and then there's this, oh, here we go again. And it's like, well, wait, (laughs) I know I'm irritated and I want to sleep, but there's actually a drive here. That's, that's occurring. And, you know, she is trying to get my attention by letting me know that she needs help. And it just happens to be in the middle of the night, even though I want to be sleeping. Uh, right. But so I've, I've experienced that principle, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So going back into this idea of the three levels of psychosynthesis. So you talked about lower self and kind of this overarching theme about the importance of attitude and considering that aspect. When we're in centered self, what does that mean and how does that play out for parents? Very simply, we're in the centered self. We can relate with mutual respect. We respect our children and we also respect our needs. And to reinforce that, um, I've created these centered self characters, all of who model respect. So 
I mean, one of the characters calls the listener and it says, we respect each other's knowledge. I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to invite you to listen to me. And I have the skills to be able to calm you down if you're stressed so that you'll also be able to listen to me. And then the humanist is a character that says we respect each other's needs. So you as a child have needs and I as a parent have needs. And our goal when we interact is to make sure I hear your needs and do what I can to help you meet them. But also that you understand that I as a parent have needs and I'm going to do what I can to meet my needs. Otherwise, I'm not going to stay in the center itself very long if my needs are denied. And so there's five characters, and they all basically said, we respect, we, we act in our relationship with mutual respect. So the centered self is always in relation to somebody else. Oh, well, I can be in the centered self just being by myself. You know, I can be in the kitchen and be very awkward, <laughs> or I can be in the kitchen and be calm and put things away after I cook or whatever. So it doesn't necessarily have to be in relation to someone else. To me, it's a it's a quality in a sense of consciousness. Okay. I'm, I'm capable, I'm graceful, I move in a way that feels comfortable and capable. Yeah. Connected and secure. Perfect. Those words are perfect. Yeah. So then moving from centered self into higher self, centered self, when you talk about what centered self would be as a parent. That is, I think, what we're after. I'm curious, what does higher self as a parent mean? Well, that's a great question. The centered self can take care of most situations, but when we face, let's say, what I call extraordinary stress, when our buttons are pushed, when our children are not meeting our expectations, or they're not living up to the values we hope, there's a lot of angst, let's say, inside of, and the centered self skills are not really ample to take care of those situations. So when I decided to to develop a, a training program and to write a book about it, I wanted to make sure that all the like, very in-depth material that I that I had learned in my life was available for parents. So so the higher self teaches you how to solve a problem so that there's a win-win approach. It also teaches you to practice um, forgiveness. It teaches you to tune into when children are talking or anyone's talking and hear the intuitive cues about what somebody is saying. So, and it also teaches us to detach and let go. These are the real button pushers. Yeah. In relationship whether it's you know a couple or with its parents so that, that it's just a higher octane fuel in the higher self that it is in the centered self okay so when we're at a high level of stress which stress and again looking back at the pandemic we know many people um, but in this conversation, particularly looking at parents have often been under a, a unique and different kind of stress then they are called upon to be pressed with access to the higher self even more because they're, they're already activated. Yes, I think that's a good way to say it, that the 
people I know who were doing better than others during the pandemic, they had a rich like internal way of just relating to the world. They fed themselves. They found readings that would support them. They made connections with some of their natural talents. They made connections with different people. So they were much more full versus for many people. You know, there were times when we felt so empty. And if we feel so empty, we can't really access even the, the skills of the center self, which are ample for most of the time. So for you, when you are sitting with a family that is under extreme stress, and, and being honest, I mean, at the point that many people, whether it's couples, individuals, families, pursue therapy or parents, it's usually because... <laughs> whatever the bad thing is, has been going on for a while and people are uncomfortable. It, it yeah. is generally not a joyful thing. Um, and that means they've been compelled to seek assistance because whatever's happening is so uncomfortable, painful, whatever it is, that now they're seeking professional help. How do you handle that initial consultation if it is that family where a parent is saying, and we don't even talk anymore and all there is is door slamming and we're all just miserable. Like, what is your approach to that session when things are that uh, tense? Well, I like to start by asking everybody in the family to talk about what is working. I know that a lot of things aren't working right now and that's why you're here and there's a lot of anger and a lot of upset. But let's try to recall what it is that does work. And so each individual will talk to mom, talk to dad, talk to sibling, and let them know what really works so that we remember that we have good times together, that there's, there, there is a family that has a lot of love. We're not accessing it right now. And that really sets a stage that, okay, so now you know my goal. My goal is to help you bring back those, those, those good feelings and find ways to heal so that we can not keep that resentment inside to work mm -hmm. it through, let it go in an honest kind of way. And usually what happens is we don't feel respected and that's why we're so angry and so upset. And the intention is to make sure that parents get respected and children get respected and I'm equally committed to each. Knowing that, and I'm, I have a slight smile when I say this, thinking back at many a family session, um, knowing that this process is sometimes easier for a parent to buy into than for a child or an adolescent. So you ask them that question of, you know, what, what does a family do well? What's really working for you? And you are met with the nothing. Okay. Nothing. How do you respond? So then I would respond to that. So you're saying that when I ask that question, it's just a blank slate. There's nothing there. And I imagine, I mean, as I listen to you, I feel really sad myself. So I imagine you must feel really, really sad that when invited to say something, you can't find anything. Now you just pulled from motivational interviewing and just did a deepening reflection. <laughs> 
So for you, it's mirroring the feeling you think the person has in that situation and then trying to let that be the springboard to invite them to talk more. Or to say to them, you know, if you have nothing to say, I'm not going to force you. I'm just going to tell you that I really feel sad for you. And I hope that when we work together, that you honestly could have something you would want to share. But right now, you can't, and that's your truth. And we need to honor that. When you work with families, do you tend to meet with parents alone for for the initial assessment to meet with a whole family? Like how, how do you usually frame therapy? And obviously it's dependent on the family and the situation, but I'm just curious for you, what's your standard approach? I like to meet the parents first. Okay. Just to get a sense of background. And because a lot of times I like to focus on really hearing the children. So I want the parents to know that I understand where they're coming from and getting the children haven't chosen to come generally. So I want to make them feel safe and we'll focus on creating a safe environment for them. Okay. And during that initial contact and assessment with parents, do you go into psychoeducation about this kind of stuff or are you just doing assessment and then it's really once everybody is in the room that you're introducing these concepts and saying, parents, here are the things that, that you could be working on? I'm curious. Well, it's a good question. I, I think I'm very spontaneous and intuitive. So if it feels right, <laughs> you know, to say certain things I do and if it doesn't, so I don't really have a a plan other than to create an environment where people can recognize what works. And then as that evolves, we go from there. Dr. Bellison, your way of being is very grounded, very calm. I imagine that when you're having these conversations with families particularly when they're activated, but probably always or almost always, you're really keeping that groundedness and letting that serve as an example and um, uh, uh, a way of presenting for the child or for the parents a different way of being that's more centered. And you're smiling as I say that. (laughs) I love what you're saying Um, because it, I think I I am calm, but I think in part I'm calm because I have so much trust that everyone really wants to make it work differently. And so the calm comes from just the belief that we can work together and we can make change and that it's really joyful for me to be a part of a process in helping parents and children enjoy each other more. So I think really it's the attitude I bring that that brings the calm. So back to the concept of attitude. Yeah, I didn't realize that, but I think that's true. Yeah. Well, and I can see that depending on which theoretical model you're looking at, the value of keeping your cool in choppy waters. And also, we obviously as clinicians don't have the same stake in 
all of it that the family does. And so it's easy for us to sometimes be more emotionally uh, calm and removed and reserved <laughs> from a situation. Uh, right. but, and I know as a parent working sometimes with children and adolescents and my own family, those are two very different things in my ability to access skills in one domain. I wish always translated, but as you said, I am human. <laughs> so I think for all of us, that lower self, we know that lower self, it exists. I don't know anybody that has transcended beyond it. <laughs> it's really fun because I've taught in Japan and their lower self pictures are just so Japanese. <laughs> you know, it's like every culture has the lower self. They all recognize it, doesn't require any explanation, but it's almost as if they're drawing comic book characters. Mm. You know, but it's really wonderful. It really helped me recognize that it's just a part of human nature. And then recently, it just feels like a big aha to me. It's very simple, but I realized we're raised by parents who model the lower self. Sometimes way too often, they were raised by parents. Certainly the culture we live in, the news, the lower self is very, very active. So it's impossible for us to not breathe it in and take it in. And that, I think that comforts me at a level just deeper than ever before. It's someday maybe our planet will evolve. And so the lower self isn't so active all mm. the time. But right now, we have no choice but to mimic it. And fortunately, there's you know, so much in psychology and in so many other avenues that really teach us and guide us how to work with it. So we do have choice and we can make change. But to think that we're not going to do it is just impossible. And that that really can lighten the load for us as individuals, as therapists, and for parents we're working with and for children too. I, I worked with a group of children once. They were four to 11. You know, nobody in their right mind would ever put a group together <laughs> with that age range. Four to 11. <laughs> but they were parents who knew each other well, and they wanted a workshop, and I was you know, happy to do that. And I asked the, the children to draw a picture of who they are when they're not so happy with themselves, and then to draw a picture of who they are when they just feel really proud. Mm -hmm. And they had a conversation that was so profound. It was a two-hour workshop, and I told my husband it took me four hours to get my feet back on the ground. I was in heaven watching. If ever I believe there's a higher self in children, that was the moment. And I, mm. I was exhilarated to see. They knew each other, and they supported each other, and they said, well, you don't always do that, you know. Sometimes you do that when people are picking on you. I mean, there was so much kindness and so much caring and so much truth. They knew who they were when they were behaving in ways that were difficult. I think the point you made about the lower self and being kind of surrounded by it, and I think it's a really valid point. When we're working with parents that feel like their cup is bone dry, their cup does not runneth over, it is bone dry. I can imagine that they want to access centered self. They want to go into higher self, but feel like they don't have any of the capability to do that. What is in your emergency toolbox as a clinician when those moments come up? Because it's something I've certainly seen and 
heard and felt particularly in the last year and a half of just the stress that everyone's been under, but parents that are trying to work from home while supporting um, at-home learning and it, the, just the challenges. I know so many parents feel like there's just nothing left to give. Right. And a lot of what I try to do is ask them, what is it that could feed you? Because you need to be fed. You know, when you're on an airplane, they, they tell you to put the, the oxygen um, mask on. Yeah, on first. And so I love that because you need to take care of yourself. And clearly the environment is not supporting that. But if you have nothing to give, then you need to begin with yourself. And so we need to take some time to really explore what you can do, what's stopping you from doing it, because the pandemic is not rolling out the red carpet for you to have time alone, yeah. but it's essential. This is medicine for you, emergency medicine. So we need to focus on that. And please try to be kind to yourself because it's a really difficult situation. I think having talked to particularly single parents of just the burden that they've had and continually have, but particularly due to the pandemic in not having any outlet, not having anyone necessarily, well, if, if they had help before to not be able to have accessed it. I know in talking with many parents and even for myself, the idea that there's this glimmer of possibility to having community again after so long of not having community, not having family support, not having friend support, not having a babysitter, not having time to go on a walk, you know, alone. It's, uh, I'm imagining clinicians and parents alike listening to this going, yeah, this, this has been a time where I haven't been able to fill up that cup and trying to figure out then what is in the emergency toolbox because it, it, it lays a groundwork for a family in chaos. And for some people, it's music. Some people, it's dance. Some people, it's art. Some people, it's reading. But some people, it's, it's reality TV. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> we need to figure out what, and we're laughing, and I think it's important that we laugh. If this is what works for us, well, go for it, because that's what's essential right now, to feed yourself. One of the things that I appreciate in the language you use about feeding yourself is that idea that this is not um, something excessive. This is something fundamental to our survival. And I think for so long, you know, this idea of like, well, self-care is getting a manicure or self-care is going on a fishing trip. Um, and yes, however, self-care can sometimes take on a very different meaning, which is I was able to shower, um, <laughs> you know, that it's like I had a cup of coffee. Um, and I appreciate that concept of feeding yourself. And I can imagine you talking to parents about that, that are really overwhelmed and stressed and sad and reminding themselves that they need food too. When I finished my PhD, I was so exhausted and I, my whole life was a to-do list. So. When I completed it, I decided to add on my to-do list all this self-care stuff because I was still programmed to do. So I would, one thing I did is I kept a novel in my car so that when I would go somewhere, if I felt stressed, 
I could always invite the characters in the novel to be my friends and support me. And it was really interesting that I, I just understood that anything I needed, I would give myself. And sometimes I would read two pages of the novel and I'd be ready to, to go somewhere else. But it was, it was a time where I understood this was a crisis and I needed a lot of healing. And I think the pandemic has been a worldwide crisis and all of us need a lot of healing and whatever healing will work for you that's constructive in a sense, constructive enough that it's not causing harm for you, then we need to honor how important it is and feel good that we found something that really works for us. This is a really powerful conversation. And I knew that it would be because these are heavy and discouraging topics. I have not met a parent. I've not met a parent ever that has said, nailing it. Uh, and I particularly <laughs> have not met a parent in the last year and a half that has said, nailing it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, but so I think even, so for me, clinically, I appreciate what you're saying. But even as a parent myself, I think there's something really healing in that concept of being given permission by a clinician saying you need to feed yourself too. And that when we feed ourselves, that's how we then go on to feed our young, essentially. I, I love when you say nailing it, because I think that's part of the problem. As parents, we have such high, unrealistic expectations of ourselves, because children are works in progress. So they're not mature enough to be able to express their needs in a way from the center self very often you said you know a baby is crying in the middle of the night that's a very effective way to get your attention but it's very difficult you know it's not timely for you so i think if parents began to understand that what what we need to offer our children is the truth the truth that we're trying the truth that we're falling short at times the truth that we need a break and that we're not capable right now of, of relating in the way that we want and the truth that we do something that really works and that we celebrate together like this was a tough one and we really made it work let's remember that we can count on that when I would work with my son I taught him the win-win method and he'd say are this not going to work and I said well it worked last time so I'm going to assume that if we put our heads together and give ourselves the time, we're going to find a win-win because what will help make it work is our willingness to hang out and do it. And I think that's modeling of just the will to make it work and giving the time and the energy and the love for ourselves and each other to help make it work. So there was a dad that we did, we had just taught a, the win-win approach and they were coming home from a vacation. They were in their car and the kids wanted to go to sleep. And there were two blankets and they were both fighting over one blanket. And he said to himself, if I do the win-win, does that mean I'm going to have to take a scissor? And <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> he cut the blanket in half. He says, but I'm going to try something. So I'm going to, so he said, I've learned this thing called the win-win approach. And to be honest with you, I have no idea really how to do it. But let's look at these blankets. One of them is soft 
And one of them has these beautiful animals on it. And so maybe you can think about what would work for you because they both wanted, I guess, the one that was soft. And then one of the kids said, oh, it's okay. I want the animals. They'll help me dream. And that was the end of that. So it wasn't any mighty skill that he did. It was the intention to make it work for both kids. They, and it did. So I'm imagining you coaching a parent through this, you know, that a family brings in a conflict. One of the things that I know in parenting when I'm in my centered self <laughs> um, <laughs> is, is to be at the child's eye level, you know, to not use my height as a power differential um, and to get down. And so I'm imagining you either sitting or, you know, if it's, if it's a little child, um, to encourage the parent or parents to get down on the same level that they are. Can you walk us through another example of the win-win, how you explain it to parents, how you explain it to kids, and then like the ideal scenario of what that would really look like to engage everybody in that type of problem solving? Hmm. Let me think. I'm thinking of different stories and trying to figure out which one to work with. I'll give you one that was pressed my buttons, extraordinary stress. So my son is 12 years old, and he's invited to gifted classes. Well, as someone who was an ambitious student and was never supported in my education, the idea that he could be invited to gifted classes was over the moon for me. And he says to me, I don't want to accept that invitation, mm. which was, I couldn't believe he said that. I figured he didn't know what I, what was, I, I felt he he was ignorant of what it really meant. Mm -hmm. I began to explain to him all the positives of what would happen. And that at a certain point, he, he, he knew me well, and he knows me well. And he says, Mom, every time I don't agree with you, you think that I don't understand you or that I haven't listened. And so he gives every point that I made very clearly. And I said to him, okay, I don't want to force you to go to these classes, but I don't want to say, fine, don't accept this invitation without really understanding, without having you convince me that it's really a good idea for you. And by inviting him to convince me, he opened his mind and his heart to me and said, I know that I qualify to go into these gifted classes. It's very clear. I don't have the confidence that the test grades show. And my plan this year is to work very hard, to raise my grades, to feel more of a competent student. And I also feel like my social life is very important this year, and I want to spend time there. And when I excel in school and when I feel more confident, I will assure you that I will join those classes. And tears run down my eyes. I said, okay, you have a plan. We're really on the same side. You want what I want. The timing isn't right. And I support you completely. So in my mind, that's a win-win. It does invite us to the higher self. Mm -hmm. But I think we can get to win-wins when we really have the intention. If, if you don't want something, help me understand your point of view. What's going on for you? Because I'm trusting that attitude. I'm trusting that you want the best for yourself. 
And right now, I can't see how that would be the best for you, but I'm open. I think that's a really powerful example and one that was very emotional for both of you. Yes. <laughs> when you're trying to facilitate a conversation like that between, for example, a teen and a parent, how do you clinically lay the groundwork? Because in that moment, you were mom. <laughs> um, how do you facilitate that therapeutically to lead them to the win-win when they're not accustomed to it? When I can easily see a parent being like, you will do this. This is a great opportunity and you will not miss it. That's what's happening. End of story. So let's suppose the parent does exactly what you're saying. And I would ask the child to say, okay, why don't you tell us what mom's point is? And the child will say, and you know, if, child, if children aren't listening, they're not going to be able to express their parents' point of view. So I say, okay, so we're going to give mom a chance again to tell you her point of view. And then I'm going to invite you to have really big ears so that you can hear what she's saying. It doesn't mean that you agree with her, but it does mean that you hear her and that you're giving her the courtesy of acknowledging her point of view. And once you're able to hear her, I'm going to ask you to share your thinking. And we're going to invite mom to have really big ears so that she can hear your point of view. And we'll continue so that the, the job that I'm going to do is make sure that each of you are respectful of yourselves and each other and that nobody's cutting someone off until they're ready. So mom is able to explain what's important to her about situation, child explains it, but mom dismisses it. Okay. And, and so, says, I, but I know what's best for you and you're only X number of years old. Okay. And so the child says, you know, we ask the child to understand mom's point of view. And then I would invite some intervention. So if you think as a child that you understand, why don't you try to convince mom? Pretend you're on a debate team and do the very, very best that you can so that you convince her. And mom, your job is to have an open mind. There's one of the centered self-characters that has a brain where it has a slit in the skull and all the brain falls out. I love that character because it's saying when you're listening to someone else, remove your biases, remove your pre prejudices, remove your point of view. After your child talks, acknowledge mm. that then you can put your brains back. And it's a, it's a funny image. And I think parents understand that we can't really take someone else in if our cup is already full. And very often the child will say something like my son did that's really useful, like they understand themselves. And if they're not able to, they can hear that it's a very vapid mm -hmm. reason. And they'll laugh at themselves. Well, you know, I don't really have a good reason. I just don't want to do it. Well, that's not very convincing. And we go back. But but there's there's something I call door openers where, you know, help me understand, help help me, you know, I'm confused, help me make sense of this, so that when someone says something, there's a respectful way to say, I'm inviting you to say more because right now I'm not really able to get the point that you're making. And I want to, I want you to really share with me your thinking. So I'm going to give you more time to do that. 
in this process that you're describing, things really slow down. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the perfect world where we can slow down enough as clinicians with a family to break down these interventions when they're so accustomed to them going 100 miles per hour that it's, I asked for this, my parents said no, and then it became a thing of who can take who out at the knees faster. Um, And you're trying to kind of level the playing field, slow everybody down. Do you do those mindfulness exercises? So at the beginning of our talk, you mentioned the idea of the elevator. Do you do those kind of things in session? Is that something you do regularly with families to help turn down their autonomic nervous system and access their frontal lobes again. (laughs) Yeah, because sometimes I'll say to them, it seems as if you're just really having a hard time. And maybe, you know, if you're open, I can help you with an exercise. And very often, parents who work with me do read my book, just because it's a, it's a deeper way to really connect with the material. So they'll be familiar with it. And at a certain age, parents often have their children do it. I've had kids, you know, as young as eight do the exercise. They have their own childlike version that they do with it. So it's it's a friend in a sense. It becomes a part of the family. The cartoons, the drawings that you've mentioned, do you invite families to do that as kind of a reflection exercise? Well, we ask parents to to do sub-personality drawings, that their own unique version of the lower self. And that's really helpful because a parent will draw a picture. One of my favorites is there's a father who draws a picture and he calls the picture old yeller, like he's yelling and screaming. And I said, well, why don't you draw a picture of your son? And he says, oh, I don't have to draw another picture. I just have to change old to young. He's a little me. And I can see that. Um, and I can see if you were if you were to lead parents, so if you have co-parents or many caregivers involved and without a child or adolescent in the room, one of the other things that I've seen, the disagreement between parents about how to approach things, who's quote unquote stricter, who is more lax. And that confusion about addressing this, I can also see that your invitation to uh, draw out their subpersonality would also show for the co-parent or parents, here are my shortcomings and I'm aware of them. Like the externalization, I guess. Yeah. And also, it's interesting when parents have different points of view, there's always the truth at least from my point of view, when someone is more lenient and someone is more strict, there's a truth that each of them represent. And so how can we manage that so that we as parents feel comfortable so that the extreme mm-hmm. of mine, the extreme of yours are not taking lead and that we can consider what our values are and also the, the individual child that we're working with so that we make it work and we respect the differences because it's really important modeling. So when we have co-parents, we we want the mom to respect dad and dad to respect mom. In some families, there are two moms and some families, there are two dads. So equally, 
it's important that we respect whoever the co-parent is and that the children recognize that there is this intention to know that the co-parent has something to offer and that we want to be able to hear what they have to offer, even if we disagree initially, because if the conversation's deeper, usually we are able to appreciate that their point of view has some value. And then that's just super modeling for children to recognize even with their own friends, that when they're having a disagreement with someone, if they are able to keep listening and respect, sometimes there's just another perspective that enters that makes it okay. These ideas, again, as you talk about it, I can hear how you're slowing things down to, I guess, try to peel off some of the pressure and the chaos and the intense emotion. Because when we're in the lower self, things need to be done yesterday. Um, and you're trying to kind of zoom out from that to to take that pressure off and, and slow down these interactions. In your perfect world, when you're working with a family and you're teaching them these concepts, talking about these different parts of themselves and these subpersonalities, the ultimate goal, it sounds like, is twofold. So it's not just that the communication would be altered, but that also that the person's relationship with themselves, their insight into their own feeling state to their values, their goals, their beliefs, all of that, they'd, they'd be more in tune with that, more aware of that, and simultaneously also use different skills to interact with somebody else, maintaining their integrity as well. Is that right? Beautifully said. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> in psychosynthesis, if we simplify it to, you know, in a sense, its essence, the intention is to gain more awareness, which is exactly what you were saying. And the other is will, to be able to learn skills, to make choices, to adopt attitudes, so when we have awareness and will, then there is room for change and transformation and respect for ourselves and for everyone else we're communicating with. And not the kind of thing that's probably going to happen in one session. Not likely. <laughs> so tell me through your lens, having done this for as many years as you have and being so skilled in this application of psychosynthesis to working with parents and, and trying to help them access that version of themselves that they really want to be more frequently and who they are as a parent. And again, this is a very targeted question and very generalized at the same time, knowing this is highly specific to the family. If you're setting the tone with, with a parent or parents about kind of what to expect and how long there's going to be a learning curve to this, what do you think is reasonable in terms of setting that expectation? Well, it's a fair question for sure. You know, some families come in and they're eager to come in because they want to do prevention work. They can see that there's more arguing when there was before and whatever. That process goes fairly quickly. But there are some families where it's hard to get them not to interrupt each other or say, you know, pretty unkind, judgmental things to mm -hmm. others. So it takes more time. And a lot of it is, I say to them, if you're able to calm yourself down, if you're able to find something, you know, I'm offering the relaxation exercise and the bridge exercise, which in, 
you relax and then you cross the bridge from the lower self to the centered self. Mm. That's an exercise. But a lot of it depends on your commitment, how much time you spend outside the session. I see you for an hour. You know, there's so many hours. And honestly, the parents who are more willing to read the book and ask questions and apply the skills and apply the exercise, things go more quickly. That's just how it is in in any area. An athlete improves more when they're willing to listen to the coach and they're willing to practice. And so a lot of it is up to you. And and when families have children sort of like from nine and older, the children read the book. Or sometimes when one partner doesn't read the book, the other partner underlines what they think is most important and gives them the book and says, okay, I know you don't really like to read. So why don't you just look at the underlines? These are the things that I think might resonate for you so that we work to have resources outside the um, session because there's only so much you can do in a session. I think one of the things that's really interesting in the way that you just presented that, having been a teenager, um, (laughs) I don't know how any teacher or any teenager feels about their parent doing like parenting classes, like, I think it's almost inevitably going to feel like a trap. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like, what's going to happen? And I'm going to get in trouble more and not knowing what to expect. But in what you're talking about, it's so completely transparent. And really, it's a foundational family plan inviting everybody to the table instead of just this, here's what the parents are going to do differently. And then it's just going to trickle down, the kids are going to somehow absorb it through just experience. It's inviting them to that conference table and getting everybody on the same page, which I think that perspective of inclusion, like you've said, it it really models for the kids that they have their own sense of self-respect and free will and are allowed to still be their eight-year-old versions of themselves and still have meaning and significance in whatever the trajectory is of the family. I mean, once kids start coming to therapy with their families, they like it. (laughs) They've never had anyone listen to them the way they are listened to during the room. And then they're here and learn to listen to them. So it it, it initially, you know, most kids don't want to come, but it becomes a very safe place for them, a place where they can really express what they're feeling, how they're thinking, and it will be heard and change does happen. Dr. Valesson, you've you've covered a number of different themes today that I think are really powerful and important for the people who are listening that want to learn more about you and about your work and also about your book. Can you tell us how to contact you, where we can find the book, things like that, please? So I have a website called bringoutthebest.com. And I've also written two books. The first one, Bring Out the Best in Your Child and Yourself, which helps parents move from the lower self to the centered self. And then the second book is called Parenting with Wisdom and Compassion. And that helps parents move from the centered self to the higher self. Both of them are on Amazon. And there are links on my website, bringoutthebest.com to Amazon. Wonderful. Um, I think these are such helpful resources. And I know that these are things that you also do trainings just like this on. And so I'm sure you 
have more information on your website about those kind of things. And if people want to get in touch with you, they can go there. Uh, Dr. Bellison, thank you. Um, for me, as a parent, I feel seen. Um, and also as a clinician, I feel empowered with a different perspective and some skills to bring into the room to bring out the best. <laughs> 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 Thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.